Let me just very quickly say thank you to everybody that's making today happen. Um, Seven Hills is a massively understaffed church, and so it means that we rely upon lots of volunteers to do everything. So thank you for everybody who's volunteering to make lots of things happen here. Thank you. All right, so um, we are in uh, the third week of a little series called How the Mighty Fall. The reason that uh, we're doing this series called How the Mighty Fall is, I think it was in 2008 or 2009, I read this book called How the Mighty Fall by Jim Collins. And so Jim Collins is uh, basically a business guru. And so if you're a business major, you may have read Good to Great or Built to Last. And uh, the idea of his books are he's sort of taking a look at these great companies and trying to figure out what makes them great. And, uh, and then one of the things that he did in, in How the Mighty Fall, it was his third book, was he took a look at how these once great businesses fell into oblivion and maybe even into bankruptcy. And, uh, and as I was reading the book, one of the things that I found as I was reading through all of his things is I, as I found myself thinking like, these are not business problems, these are human problems, right? And so what we saw a couple of weeks ago is that the first stage of how one of these mighty companies falls into oblivion is hubris that is born of success, otherwise known as pride, right? The Bible has a lot to say about pride, and in particular, the Bible has a lot to say about how pride leads to our downfall, and there's story after story in Scripture and Proverbs, proverb after proverb that points to that. The second phase that Collins identified in uh, how one of these mighty companies uh, falls into oblivion is this idea of an undisciplined pursuit of more, otherwise known as greed. The Bible has a lot to say about greed, right? The Bible has a lot to say about how uh, debauchery, which is another sort of a manifestation of greed, can ultimately lead to our downfall. It's uh, too much of a good thing. There's something called Packard's Law, and Packard's Law says that for Americans, we're much more likely to die of indigestion than we are of starvation. Metaphorically, there's just so many opportunities, so many things to do. It's very easy for greed to be the thing that leads to our downfall. And then today, uh, we're going to be looking at the third phase from How the Mighty Fall, and it's technically called Denial of Risk or Peril, and Peril, and really it's a discussion uh, of foolishness. It's a discussion of making decisions where you know you should do one thing, but you do the other. Jeremy hearkened to that as he was leading through worship today. Before we jump in, let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, thanks for the people that are here today. Um, I thank you that you've brought them here. I thank you that you brought me here. I thank you um, that we'll be looking at your word. I thank you that, that the Holy Spirit is not only in me, but the Holy Spirit is in those of us in this room who trust in you as our, as our Father and your Son as our Savior. Father, I pray that your Spirit would be upon us in an unmistakable fashion, and that because of the, the songs that we have sung today, because of the conversations we've had with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Father, for the words of your scripture we're getting ready to, to read, Father, I pray that all those things would work together to not only change the way that we think, uh, but even to change our desires. And Father, I pray that our desire would be to trust in you um, and to believe in you and to believe that you're for us and to believe that, uh, that even this life that you've called us to is an assignment you've given us to partner with you in seeing your kingdom come pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So there are any number of different events in your life, I would guess, where you can say, man, I remember right where I was when 
that happened. I remember when Princess Diana died, right? I remember when the two towers were hit by the terrorists. One of those events that people can remember very much where they were, depending on how old you are, is uh, was when the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up in 1986. So that means about 17 of you in this room remember that. Anyway, what's interesting, though, if you guys are probably familiar with this story, but on January 27th, um, actually on the 28th, a launch was scheduled to take off from Cape Canaveral in Florida. And um, the engineers in the NASA Aerospace Department, they looked at the weather report. The launch was supposed to happen at 11.38 a.m. on the 28th. And on the 27th, they looked at the weather report, and it was an unusually cold you know, kind of streak. And they said, man, it looks like it's supposed to be 37 degrees on the 28th at 11.38 at launch time. And so they called up um, Morton Rockets. Morton was the company that designed that, if you, I don't know if you can see, but that giant cylinder behind the space shuttle. It was this big you know, rocket. And, uh, and that was designed by Morton, Morton Rockets. And they asked Morton, they said, hey, um, you know, we've run tests at all these various temperatures, but tomorrow it's going to be, it's supposed to be 37 degrees. Is it safe for us to launch the Challenger tomorrow, or do we need to delay? They entered into a three-hour phone call where the engineers from NASA and the engineers from Morton Rockets had this back-and-forth, back-and-forth, back-and-forth conversation. And, and essentially, um, what they ended up deciding at the end of that conversation is it's too risky. But then, later that night at about 12 a.m., uh, or towards midnight, uh, one of the, some of the engineers from Morton Rockets got together, and they said, we think that we can actually do it. So they actually called NASA back, and they said, hey, we think it's fine. Go ahead with the launch. And so the morning of the launch arrived, and of course, as you guys are familiar, um, you know, the, the launch time rolled around, and it was about 37 degrees. Uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger went up into the air, and 73 seconds later, it burst into a ball of flame, and pieces of it descended into the ocean beneath. What happened is the question. Well, what happened was very interesting. There were these O-rings that were on sort of on the rocket. This is a part of the, the rocket that Morton designed. And they had never tested them at any temperature below 53 degrees. Then they had tested them many times at temperatures below 60 degrees. And each time they tested them below 60 degrees, there had been a little bit of damage in these O-rings. And so what happened was, is they looked at all the data. They sort of knew, man, this is risky. It's possibly going to be a problem, but we don't want to mess up the schedule. We don't want to disappoint NASA. We don't want to make ourselves look bad. And so let's go ahead and green light this thing. And of course, the result was a very, very foolish decision that ended up costing seven people their lives, right? And so part of the lesson that I think we can learn from this is that, and Jeremy pointed this out this morning, is that fundamentally wisdom is not only knowing what's true, but it's knowing what to do and then doing it, right? And foolishness is when you know what's true, you know what to do, and choosing to do what you want to do anyway even though ultimately it might lead, in this case, obviously, to death and to destruction and great loss. Now, as I read through this chapter, I couldn't help but think, coming back to this idea of wisdom and foolishness, right? Wisdom and foolishness. And so I went ahead and I looked at Proverbs 9, and we're going to skip, you can just skip, Jack, that definition that I threw up a minute ago. I apologize, man. And we're going to jump into Proverbs 9, and we're going to read this description that's written about wisdom and foolishness, and then we're going to unpack it a bit. So, beginning at verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. 
She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let, who are, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. I just let that sink in for a moment. Let that rattle around in your head a little bit as you think about your preconceived notions of wisdom and foolishness. Verse 7. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they'll be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom, your days will be many and years will be added to your life. If you're wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you're a mocker, you alone will suffer. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by who go straight on their way, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. So what we see in Proverbs 9 here is that wisdom and folly are metaphorically re- sort of referred to as the woman wisdom and the woman folly, right? Lady wisdom, lady folly. Both sit at the highest point in the city. This is where the temple would have been. It's where public dialogue would have occurred. They're both sitting there at the highest point in the city. They're both in real competition for people's hearts, right? And they're in competition for our hearts this very morning, this very day in our lives. But what's interesting is in this passage, we see the marks and the results of wisdom and folly contrasted. Now, a minute ago, I gave a, a utilitarian definition. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll give it again really quickly, and I do think it's in the slides. But again, wisdom, this is a very utilitarian, pragmatic definition of wisdom. It's related to knowledge, but it's much more than knowledge. Wisdom is not only knowing what's true, but it's also knowing what to do and then doing it. Folly or foolishness, on the other hand, is knowing what's true, knowing what to do, but then deciding I'm just going to do what I want to do anyway even though it's very clear that foolishness leads to suffering and foolishness ultimately leads to destruction. Now, we don't have a ton of time, but I'm going to try to contrast these two really quickly based upon Proverbs 9. So we're going to start by looking at wisdom. And and again, I'm going to kind of chop through these relatively quickly. First point that I think we see in this passage, and, and there are more that could be made, so I'm just going to highlight a few. But one of the things that we see in Proverbs 9 is that wisdom results in stability. Let me let that sink in for a minute. Wisdom results in stability, in safety, in security. Think about that for a second. How many of you long for security, stability, safety, right? I mean, most of us have a deep longing for that. Verse 1 says, wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. And we can go into the seven pillars. You know, there's sort of this concept of perfection, Seven pillars would have been required to build a large house, but ultimately the reason for pillars was to create stability. That's what we're talking about here. 
Recently, many of you saw Hurricane Michael sweep over the panhandle on October the 10th. It's funny, I have a little news feed on my phone, and I'll kind of, sometimes after I have read the Bible in the morning, I'll click on my news feed and kind of scroll through it. And as I was scrolling through it, I saw this picture, and I thought it was an interesting picture. It's not very clear, so you can't see it very well. But this is a place in the panhandle um, where Michael came through, and you can't really see it too clearly, but there are two houses standing, and everything else is wiped out. Now, what's interesting is the point of the article was actually to say these were the two houses on the beach that had been both, both been built to withstand hurricanes, right? And sure enough, you can see that they both withstood the hurricanes, a hurricane, and all the ones that weren't built to withstand the hurricane got crushed along the way. In fact, behind the biggest house right here you can see in the foreground, right behind it, there was actually a series of six different condominiums. They're all gone. Now, the reason I talk about this and sort of the concept of stability is because, admittedly, the book of Proverbs is a book of axioms. These are statements that are generally true, right? Like the early bird gets the worm, that kind of thing. And the reason that they're generally true, the reason they're Proverbs, the reason they're generalizations is because generally that's the way things work. That's the way life goes. And in this case, part of what Proverbs 9 is talking to, you about, uh, talking to us about is that when we have a business that is governed by wisdom, when we have a family that is governed by wisdom, when we as an individual live a life that is governed by wisdom, then it's a stable and secure life, financially, morally, ethically, relationally stable. It's what we really long for, and it's what wisdom promises to give. Wisdom results in stability. The second thing we see in Proverbs 9 is that wisdom results in fulfilling labor, or maybe another way of saying it is that uh, fruitful labor is the product of, of wisdom. Look at verses 1 through 3, and listen to, to Lady Wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She also has set her table. She has sent out her servants. She calls from the highest point of the city. Now contrast that with the foolish woman who does what? She sits at the door of her home, right? The foolish woman reclines while this wise woman is at work. The meat, the wine, her table, the house, all are the results of her labor and her hard work, and the fruit of her wisdom isn't only enough for her, but it blesses other people as well. She invites them in, and they're able, able to enjoy the fruit of her labor. Now, very quickly, let me just say this. Some of you guys are, are Marthas as opposed to Marys, and Marys might be a little more inclined to be reflective. Marthas might be a little more inclined to hard work. And so I'm not saying don't rest at all, but what this is very clearly saying is that in general, that if we live wise lives, that part of the product or the outgrowth of the wisdom and the wise lives that we live will be fruitful labor. And the fruitful labor that we employ will not only bless us, but it will bless other people as well. When I thought about this, um, this section, I thought about, honestly, I thought about Truett Cathy, and I thought about Windshape. And I thought about how uh, my wife and I have gotten to go to, on a Windshape marriage retreat up at Windshape. And I thought about how we got to go to, on two Windshape marriage sailing adventures. And I thought about how I got to sit at the Chick-fil-A bowl in the Chick-fil-A box with Truett Cathy right here. And I got to eat my weight in chicken nuggets. I didn't have to wear chapstick for like a month. It was awesome. I also, <laughs> also couldn't open the door to my house because my hands were so greasy. But 
the point is, is that look at the way that Truett Cathy lived his life. It, it yielded this fruitful labor that has blessed us, right? It's blessed many of us in this room. That's part of the yield of wisdom is this fruitful labor that benefits not just you, but other people as well. And all of us in this room, at some point in lives, we're not just going to be in charge of ourselves, taking care of ourselves, but we're going to have other people to provide and to care for as well. And it's going to be one of the most satisfying things that we can actually engage in as human beings. And wisdom is the path to that fruitful labor. So stability, fruitful labor, wisdom results in life. So listen to verse 5. Come, eat my food, drink the wine I've mixed, leave your simple ways, and you'll live. So the result of folly is death. We're going to get there in a few minutes. But the result or the end goal of wisdom is a long and good life. And again, I don't want to be judgmental, but in general, this is, it's actually just true. And the truth is, you know it's true, right? One of the primary themes that comes out of the book of Proverbs is that wise living results in a long and blessed and a fruitful life, usually in general, this is a generalization, whereas foolish living leads to a frustrating and suffering and shortened life. Right, this is the same message that's conveyed in Aesop's fable uh, of the ant and the grasshopper. You guys maybe remember this from somewhere along the way in your childhood. Uh, but it's this great story. You, you can kind of see in the picture there, there's some ants in the background, and they're all carrying seeds of wheat. And, uh, and as the summer is, is early summer, they're carrying these seeds back to their, um, their nest. And the grasshopper is fiddling, and he's playing around and having a good time, and he's sort of eating and resting and he talks to the ants, and he's like, what are you guys doing? He's like, you need to chill out a little bit. You need to rest a little more. And they're like, nope, we got to work. Winter's coming. And he runs into them in the, mid, you know, in the middle of the story. It's midsummer, and they're still working. They're carrying seeds, and he's out there fiddling. He's out there playing. And he talks to them again, and they, you know, they invite him this time to come along with them. And he says, no, I'm good. I'm having fun. I'm playing the fiddle. I'm enjoying myself. You ought to join me. They go on their way. They continue building their nest. And, of course, at the very end of Aesop's fable, what you see is that winter arrives, and the grasshopper freezes and dies lonely and suffering in the cold, and the ants are warm and happy in their nest. The idea is this, that foolish living ultimately is going to lead to death, but wise living leads to life. So wisdom results in stability. Wisdom results in this fruitful labor. Wisdom results in life. And then finally, wisdom results in growth and thriving and maturity. Verse 9 says this, instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. And again, if you contrast foolishness and wisdom, then what you see is the foolish end up suffering, but the wise thrive and they grow. And when I read this um, section, I actually thought about Sam Walton, who was the founder of Walmart, and thought about a particular story that I thought was very interesting. There's a group of, uh, there's a picture of Sam right there. Um, There's a a story that I read about um, a group of Brazilian businessmen who heard about Sam Walton, heard about his business model. And so this group of Brazilian businessmen began buying up some property and some businesses in Brazil, and they wanted to try to emulate um, Walmart's business model. And so they bought a bunch of businesses, and uh, one of them contacted Sam Walton and said, hey, we'd love to come and just kind of pick your brain on how you operate and how you run things because we'd love to learn from you. And so these businessmen, um, you know, hopped on a flight in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and flew over to the United States. And interestingly enough, when they got off their plane, they were met by an old man in an F-150 pickup truck with a king cap, 
And, uh, and it was Sam Walton picking them up personally at the airport, even though he was, at this point in time, a multi-multi-millionaire. And so they, these wealthy Brazilian businessmen piled into his F-150, and he drove them to his house, where they stayed in his guest bedrooms, and he made breakfast for them and made lunch for them and made dinner for them. And these Brazilian businessmen, at the end of the day, they said, you know, we were there to learn from Sam Walton. We wanted to gain wisdom from him and pick his brain. And he said, we'd been with... They, they are telling the story, and they said, we'd been with him for 10 or 11 hours before we realized that all we had been doing was answering questions from him, that he was the one that was asking us questions. He was the one seeking wisdom from us. And I just thought it was an interesting picture of a man, Sam Walton, who in his humility uh, desired to gain wisdom from these men who came to seek, seek wisdom from him. And the product of Sam Walton's humility and his wisdom is that Walmart has been number one on the Fortune 500 for seven years in a row. It's, it's valued at $500 billion, with a B, dollars, right? And so the point of all of this to say, is to say that wisdom has all these massive benefits, stability, fulfilling fruitful labor, uh, life, thriving, right? All of these things are the product and the outgrowth of wisdom. It kind of makes you wonder, well, why would I choose anything other than wisdom? Let's jump into the other side of the equation really quickly and look at foolishness or folly. So folly, you'll be able to tell as we read through some of these verses in Proverbs 9, you'll see is is contrasted very clearly. First of all, folly results in suffering, right? Look at verse 12. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer, right? So foolish behavior ultimately results in suffering. Some of you know that Krista and I weren't here last weekend. Um, For Krista's 44th birthday, um, we went hiking on a 25-mile loop up in the Nanahala Forest. And uh, we, we planned this like six or seven weeks ago. And in the week or two leading up to it, I kept getting on the weather app to see what the weather was going to be. And it showed that the Friday night we were going to get there was supposed to have like this torrential downpour. And then on Saturday night after the torrential downpour, it was supposed to be the coldest weather of the year. And so, you know, I looked at it and I thought, well, this is our only shot to do it. we got to go. And uh, so, fortunately, Tom Combs, who may or may not be in here, let me borrow his zero-degree bag, and we had another 30-degree bag. But we left, and we got up to the Nana, this uh, particular area, the standing India Indian campground. And uh, we got all our stuff, and we you know, sort of hiked up this ridge. We got up to this one ridge just below the standing Indian mountain in time to set up camp. And we made camp, made a fire, but we knew the rain was coming. And that night, we had, which was maybe like the second or third worst night of sleep in my entire life, because it was raining, we had to put our backpacks inside the tent, and so I couldn't straighten out my legs. And then it rained so hard and was so windy that night that the tent leaked. And so all night long, I was getting like water on my face, and Krista's sleeping bag was wet. It was kind of miserable. It was, there was suffering, right? We <laughs> could have stayed in a hotel. Anyway, so, but that was just the first night. So the second night, we knew, we had looked at the, the weather thing, you know, app or whatever, and we saw that the second night was supposed to be, I originally it said 37, but then the weather kept changing and it kept saying it's going to be this, it's going to be this, until finally it was supposed to be 27 degrees. And so as we were hiking out of our super rainy campsite the next day, we ran into a, a bunch of hikers that were coming the other direction, and they were like, hey, how'd it go last night? And we were like, yeah, that was awesome. It was great. We're loving it. Anyway, um, got, a little, got a little wet. And they said, well, it's, it's, essentially, they were basically saying, like, nothing compared to what tonight's going to be. And one of the guys that, that we ran into said, it's supposed to be 25 degrees up here tonight. And so, again, we were like, well, 
I guess we're here. We've got to do it. And so we hiked up and hiked a little further. It's 25 miles, and we're carrying 50 pounds each. Anyway, make a long story short, we found another ridge, another campsite, and we set up camp and got on our weather app, and there was supposed to be a wind advisory that night. It was supposed to be in the upper 20s to mid-20s. And that night, we just stayed in this tent, and we froze our buns off all night. Anyway, to make a long story short, maybe this isn't the best illustration in the world. I don't know about Krista, but I suffered for three days and two nights. And all the while, we could have called it short and gone to stay in the hotel. Point is, folly results in camping trips that result in suffering. All right. (laughs) Really quickly. So we know intuitively that foolish behavior ultimately leads to misery and suffering. Like, we really do know that, right? And that can be seen at micro levels. It can be seen at macro levels. You know from Thanksgiving, you know, if you've lived any time, that if you stuff yourself, you're going to end up being miserable, right? Eventually, you get to the point where you decide not to do that anymore, right? Um, Parents are so hard on their kids. We're tough on our kids because we know that if we allow them to continue to live in their folly, that they're going to end up being miserable. They're going to end up suffering through the days of their lives. And so we don't want that for them. It's also why God gives us the wisdom literature and he gives us scripture because he wants his children to thrive. He doesn't want us to suffer. Folly results in suffering. Folly also results in death. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says this, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. There's a a man named John Krakauer, who's written any number of different um, articles and books, usually on sort of survivalist-type things and adventure literature. And uh, in 1996, he was part of, um, of a, a, a group that was trying to climb Mount Everest. And there's a, his book is called Into Thin Air. There's a movie based upon it. There's a picture of him on the front of Outside Magazine. And if any of you guys know that story, part of what you know is that uh, they were supposed, there were several different teams that were supposed to climb Mount Everest on a particular day. And you have to get up really early in the morning, and you have to make it to the summit um, of uh, Mount Everest by a certain time. And if you don't make it by that certain point in time, you have to turn around and go back. And the leaders of both of the groups that, uh, that were going up that day with Krakauer, one led, led by Rob Hall, the other led by Scott Fisher, each had a turnaround point. I think it was like 11 a.m. in the morning. If you don't make it up to the summit by 11 a.m., no matter what, you got to turn back because that's when the weather blows in. That's when people end up you know, freezing to death and dying up there. And the whole point of the story is that Krakauer was part of one of these trips that was going up the mountain, and there were several people that were on these trips, and you spend fifty to $75,000 to let Rob Hall or Scott Fisher take you up. And they reached a certain point, and both of the leaders said, you know what, we're close enough let's just keep on going. And so they ignored the time at which they were supposed to turn around. And as a result, nine people died that day on Mount Everest as a result of their foolish decision. Foolishness leads to death. What's interesting is I did some research on mortality in the United States. In the United States, 75% of early deaths or early mortality heart disease, certain types of cancer, certain types of respiratory diseases, stroke, things like that, can be prevented by lifestyle changes. In other words, 75% of early onset mortality is because of us knowing the right thing to do and not doing it. Does that make sense? Again, the idea is that folly results in death. Folly is also incorrigible. In other words, it's unwilling to change. That's what verses 7 and 8 say. 
7 and 8 say this, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. And so one of the things we see about foolishness is, again, it knows what to do, but it says it's going to do what it wants to do anyway, and it squanders the opportunities of life. Again, we could, I could mention any number of different people to you. Um, I'm not going to go into to this detail, this illustration very long, but I'm just going to flash up Johnny Manziel really quickly. And this is, the intention of this is not to throw him under the bus. In fact, I feel very badly for him. I feel bad for him. Um, he won the Heisman Trophy as a freshman at Texas A&M. He was drafted in the first round of the NFL draft by the NFL Brown, I mean, uh, by the Cleveland Browns. But because he kept making such foolish decisions over and over and over again, they released him. He ended up being picked up by the Montreal Alouettes, where he now plays in the Canadian Football League. In other words, foolishness ultimately is unwilling to change and, again, leads to destruction, leads to death. Finally, foolishness or folly is seductive and is marked by misleading promises. Look at verse 13 through 17, verses 13 through 17. The woman folly is loud. And it's interesting, that word loud there in the Hebrew is whom. Sounds like it's onomatopoeia. But that word whom means it growls, it roars, it's boisterous, it creates a commotion. And so again, imagine, think, close your eyes for a moment, think about foolishness, right? Maybe think about foolishness as it exists in a sorority or in a fraternity. And so the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But again, remember, that's where the dead are. And you'd think that all of the negatives surrounding foolishness, all the dangers surrounding foolishness and foolish behavior, you'd think that as we see all those things and as we intuitively know all those things, that we couldn't run away from foolish behavior fast enough. But clearly, that's not the case. Foolishness and foolish behavior are attractive, right? They're winsome. They are seductive. Think about movies like Animal House, if you're over 50 years old. Or if you're younger than that, think about old school or think about the hangover, right? I mean, these things are glamorized, right? Think about um, you know, sort of visions of, of college where there's big frat parties and sororities, you know, parties and all these things. And what happens is, is those things always leave you empty. They always leave you alone. They always hollow you out. They always make you less human. As I thought about this, I thought about Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, the seductiveness and these misleading promises. And unfortunately, you can't see it very clearly there. That's the Disney version. But essentially, there's this really wonderful part of Peter Pan where if you guys are familiar with the story, Peter Pan leads this group of lost boys who all refuse to grow up, right? That's part of the theme of the lost boys. And so they just live however they want to live. And what's interesting is um, as you watch the Disney version and as you read the other versions, what you see is that they're not happy at all, even though they're doing exactly the things that they think they want to do. They're doing exactly the things that they think bring them pleasure But if you remember, what do, they, what do they long for? What do they long for? Yeah, they long for, they long for a mother, right? And what does a mother represent? A mother represents nurture. And security. 
and safety and home, right? So all those things that, that foolishness promised, they don't deliver. And so they end up lonely and they end up scared and they end up hollow. And what they long for is just someone for someone to provide them safety, security, and home. So foolishness always offers things that it can't deliver, right? It always leads you hollow. It always leads you empty. So when you think about this contrast of wisdom and foolishness, it'd be easy on the one hand to have the takeaway of this sermon to be, don't be a fool, right? It'd be really easy. Mr. T would approve of that message, right? The problem is that atheists and Muslims and Jews and Mormons, they would all agree with that, right? So what makes the fact that we're Christians any different? Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when I think about the fear of the Lord, I don't think about the fear of punishment, because as one of the things that Hebrews 12 makes clear is that when we're children of God, that God will discipline us sometimes, but He doesn't punish us any longer because He's punished Jesus in our place. And so what does the fear of the Lord mean? The fear of the Lord means awe and reverence and respect. I had a conversation with some buddies the other day, and we were talking about the ocean And I was telling them how much I love the ocean precisely because it makes me feel so small. I love it. I love it. I love the fact that it's immense and it's mysterious and it's huge and it's dangerous. And I am wise when I'm cautious and fearful of it, but I'm also moved by its beauty and its power and its immensity. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But that's not all. The second half of this verse says, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so godly wisdom not only grows from looking at God's immensity and His transcendence, but godly wisdom begins with knowing the Holy One, Jesus, His Son. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Those of us in this room who have given our lives to Christ, we, we understand that. I mean, I mean, what else would save us from our foolishness but the power of God in us? Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? We can close our eyes and think about who all those people are. Has God not made the foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In other words, The answer is not, don't be a fool. The answer, as always, is to look at Christ. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, I pray that that we would look at your son, Jesus, and that, like Tucker today, um, and like the people who joined today, um, that we would quit trying to save ourselves, quit trying to protect ourselves, which seem wise, 
but instead that we would trust in your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray that Jesus would be the power that saves us and changes us. But Father, I also pray that as we look at Jesus, that Jesus would be our wisdom, that Jesus would be our Alpha and our Omega, the beginning and the end, the light, the path, Father. And Father, I pray that as we trust in your son, Jesus, that we would indeed thrive, um, that we would thrive relationally in humility and in love with one another. Father, I pray that we would um, thrive even physically as we seek to submit our physical lives to you and to your son, Jesus. Father, most of all, obviously, I pray that we would thrive spiritually as we seek not to offer to you our righteousness and our goodness, but rather that we would come to you, Father, with our hands held out, holding in front of you nothing more than our trust and our faith and our proclamation that we trust in your son, Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.